0: Amen. So we have come to the end of the book of Acts. We've been here since just after Easter, and here we are on the precipice of Christmas, and we are at the end—the very last two verses of the book of Acts—and we've gone through it pretty fast. Um, maybe you felt the briskness of the pace we've been at. We've been doing chapters at a time. Last week we did two chapters, and um, it's been a—it's been a big overview. The point hasn't been to to get every single detail taught or learned about every single happening or every single word or verse in the book of Acts, but the big idea has been to learn what is the church through what we see in the earliest church in Acts. And so from the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 to now Paul in Rome, some 30 years later, we've seen the church born and extending out into the world, into the whole Roman Empire, to where now, this morning, Paul is finally in Rome. These last two verses. And so this morning, we're just going to look at these final two verses and see what the takeaway is for us as we finish up the book of Acts. God is on the move. That's what we've been saying for months now through the book of Acts. God is on the move. And that phrase comes from... The Chronicles of Narnia from a famous passage in C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Let me just read it to you again. I read it to you a couple of the first times, the first few sermons, and then we've just been kind of using it since. But let me just remind you where that phrase comes from. It's a paragraph here. It says, they say Aslan is on the move. Remember, Aslan is the lion, who is the depiction of of God and of Christ in the story. They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, But in the dream, it feels like as if it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying meaning, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund, felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. God is on the move. What is it that happens in you? When that phrase is used, because the phrase God is on the move is about in about 30 minutes to transition from Paul to you. Because the end of the book of Acts is the beginning of your story, the beginning of our church's story, the beginning of our part in the mission of God in his redemptive plan of God restoring all things back to how they were supposed to be and renewing it and making all things right. And we get to be part of that through the work of God in the world uh, for us and for the sake of those who need him the most. So just as an opening illustration, I was thinking this week, I was, I've done a lot of Zoom calls in the last 20 months. Anybody been on Zoom lately? Zoom continues. Um, but I've been on a lot of Zoom calls recently, but I had a strange thing happen this week. I went into a room where there was an in-person meeting. And I looked across the room and I saw someone and I said, I think I recognize that guy. And then I said, no, I don't think so. I don't think I know him after all. And five minutes later, this person walks across the room to me and said, hey, you're Steven. And as soon as he spoke, as soon as he opened his mouth and, and used words, I heard his voice. I said, you're Kika. I know you, but I've only met you from here up. From, your, from your, your chin up, because I've only seen him on Zoom. I'd never met him in person before. But as soon as he spoke, I recognized his face. But I had never seen him. I, I didn't know how tall he was. I didn't know how much he weighed. I didn't, I didn't know anything else about him other than his face and his voice. But I, I knew him once he spoke. And so this morning, we see Paul finally made it to Rome. Rome has been his destination for several years now. He's been saying it for a while that his, he wanted his final destination to be Rome because that is the capital of the empire of the whole Roman empire, obviously. Um, and this is where he's been trying to go. And he shows up this week under house arrest because he's appealed to go to see Caesar. So they bring him to Rome. He's got his own kind of personal bodyguard. He's living under house arrest. But people begin to come up to him, and they recognize him, and they know who he is because of his letters, because of his influence in other cities throughout the Mediterranean Empire. And so just as I recognize my friend Kika, uh, people begin to now have a body and a voice to the Apostle Paul because he's there in person, and he's made it to Rome. And so this morning, we're going to look at an interesting kind of way of, of how, do we, how do we take the message of the book of Acts and the themes of it and apply it to our own lives, particularly this theme of Rome. Rome is a hard place in the first century around the time of Jesus and continuing. It's a hard place. It's probably considered the capital of the world, a place of power and influence, But it's also a hard place. Paul is going to have a hard experience in the city of Rome. Christians are beginning to have a hard experience in the place of Rome. And what I want to point out this morning as we go on, this is my my major theme of the morning, is that Jesus makes living in a hard place a good thing. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He got to Rome. He probably knew it was going to be hard to be there. But Jesus makes living in a hard place a good thing. So I want to go through just a couple of progressions this morning and ask first, what is Rome for each of us? So Rome is, was and is a literal place. Rome still exists. Um, but as Paul shows up in Rome in the first century, it is a, it is a metaphor for how the church is to engage with the world. I think probably an increasing metaphor for how to in, how the church is to engage with the world in the West, particularly. I'm going to get into that in just a moment. But Sarah and I have a, some friends in ministry that are church planters in Rome. They uh, they're from Brazil originally, and they they've lived in Rome for I think 12 years now. They've raised their family there, and they planted a church in Rome. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is this is what my friend Rene Brule is his name. This is what he. This is what he describes about the modern-day city of Rome. He says, it's observed that for 1,000 years at least, the Western church's basic ministry model was premised on the social reality that people would be coming, prepared, and positive, and we could simply preach our sound biblical sermons to them. But in our local context today, we have found that both the power and the limitations of of religious services and Bible studies, God does bless the preaching and study of his word, certainly. But the number of Romans, modern day Romans, who are coming prepared and positive to hear that message are actually very small. Most residents of Rome do not have any interest or inclination to visit a Protestant church. And what's interesting is that if you take it back 2,000 years ago, it was probably the same 2,000 years ago. The city of Rome, when Paul came, was pre-Christian. There were very little Christians there, very small church influence. And then as the centuries went by, it swelled and it grew into quite a central hub for Christianity. It became the capital of the Christian empire, you could say, the center of Christendom, especially when... Um, One of the emperors, Constantine, made it the official religion of the empire 300 years later. But then now, 2,000 years later, like much of the West, the modern West, belief in God or belief in Jesus has declined. And so here's my friend, Rene, planting a church in Rome, basically doing the same kind of ministry 2,000 years later that Paul was doing in the first century. Kind of amazing. So what is Rome. What, what is the metaphor of Rome that I want to unpack for you so that you and I can understand it? Because uh, I, think, I think we live in a type of Rome today, that we can learn how to be a church in Rome also. So first, Rome is a place that is foreign. It's a place that's foreign. Or you could say it's a place that just isn't, isn't home. It doesn't, it doesn't scream home when you first come to it. And so maybe maybe some of you are, are not from New England originally. I'm looking across and seeing some folks that I know have moved here from other places. And maybe you can remember the first time you moved to New England and just what, what, what a couple of those first few days or first few weeks were like as you learned the difference between New England and wherever else you came from, maybe another country, maybe another part of the US. But New England has a distinctiveness to it. Or maybe Salem has a distinctiveness within New England. Maybe you moved from another town in Massachusetts or New England, and then you came to Salem eventually. What were the first things that you felt or thought or, or, or saw when you first came to Salem or to New England? Any place that you go to for the first time feels new and feels different and feels strange. And that's certainly one part of what Rome is like. It's a place that's foreign. It's a place you have to learn about, learn to get to know. And my family is still getting to know Salem a little bit. We've been here 11 months and we're starting to learn a little bit more, but we're still learning things for the first time. Rome is also a place that is is defined by the plural, by the many. What I mean by that is, is there's Rome is a place of, of many, many everythings. It's a place of diversity, a place of religious diversity. So first century Rome was a place that You were invited to bring your religion with you when you moved to Rome in the early century. It was polytheistic, meaning you could could worship a lot of different types of gods in Rome. Some people worshipped spirits in nature. Some people had their own household or family spirits. Some people did food or animal sacrifices. And then eventually, people in Rome would actually worship the emperor. So Emperor Claudius or Emperor Nero... this whole thing became called emperor worship. You worshiped the guy who was the head of Rome because he was seen as a god himself. And they put statues of them uh, all around the city. You could worship them. Rome is a place where you would throw your beliefs into a religious melting pot, and you could bring your religion with you. And therefore, things like tolerance and inclusion, or like we mentioned last week, peace, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana became the calling card of rome rome is a place of many classes of people where many different types of sexuality or economics or jobs or races you could come there and find a place in rome rome is a place where you simply the the goal is simply not to make a scene but just to fit in just be part of the religious social melting pot and find a place Rome finally is a is a place that's costly, and this is where we get we begin to see Paul explicitly say these things. So look at verse thirty. If you have your Bible with you, you can open up, or if you you just have your sheet of paper here from the bulletin, we're just going to look at these two verses. You can just have that open in front of you. But look at verse thirty. Rome is a place that is costly. So it says in verse thirty that Paul lived in Rome two whole years at his own expense. That really means a couple of things here. It means that Paul was paying for his own place to live, but also it means that he, was, he wasn't in jail. He wasn't in, he wasn't in prison. He was under house arrest, which means he had a little bit more freedom, but he also had to provide his own place. So it was a costly place. And this just got me thinking about you know, modern-day Rome's that just continue the metaphor for us of living in the world is a financial cost to us. I'm thinking particularly of Salem now. Salem is not a cheap place to live. It's getting increasingly more expensive. It's a hard place to find cheap rent. And so it's costly to live in a place like Salem or a place like Boston or some of these places where you have a lot of diversity, a lot of things happening, a lot of opportunity. There's a cost to living there financially. And so uh, it costs us modern day money to to indwell in a place like this. But also think about it costly in the sense of just safety or comfort or kind of the counting the cost mentality. Paul, again, was coming to Rome knowing that his safety was probably going to be put into question. The emperor at the time of this story is a guy named Emperor Nero, which if you've taken any kind of Western civilization classes, but we're not going to go into a history class now, but just a couple of things about nero he he was the he was the emperor at this time and it was a relatively peaceful time this is around 62 AD or so about 2 years later much of the city of rome would catch fire and would burn to the ground and no one really knew exactly uh, who started the fire or what happened But Emperor Nero, by this time, was getting a little fed up with the Christian influence, maybe because Paul was there and was beginning to develop a community. And guess who Nero blamed the fire on? Blamed it on the Christians. And then slowly he began to kick all the Christians out of Rome and told them to leave. Or eventually, as the years would go on, they would build the Colosseum, which was built about five years later, and that's where they would have kind of public spectacles to persecute Christians in the Colosseum, which still stands to this day. So Nero was beginning to wreak havoc on the Christians in Rome. By this time, the Jewish people had already been kicked out of the city of Rome. And remember last week when they were, they were kind of talking about Paul being the ringleader of the small sect of the Nazarenes? That's still kind of how Christianity is viewed in this point of the story. But by two years from now they're beginning to see it's not just a small sect anymore this is actually a threat to rome because people were getting to put their trust in jesus and not put their trust in the emperor nero nero was getting upset and so as time would go on martyrs would occur uh, in the city of rome peter it's told uh, died a martyr in the city of rome paul would leave Rome and go on to Spain and then be brought back to Rome years later and also be put to death in the city of Rome. But it's not just death or persecution that was a safety issue for Christians at this time. It also is just the, the threat of being uncomfortable, being a social outcast, being an outsider in the city that was a reality of living in Rome. And so finally, this is my last point about the Rome metaphor. Then we'll begin to turn to look at it for ourselves. Rome is a place, metaphorically, that is primarily, predominantly, not Christian. So again, like I said, when Paul is coming to Rome at this point in the story in Acts 28, most people have never heard of Jesus. Most people are not part of a church. Most people don't know anyone who's part of the church. There's a very small community. There was a couple named Priscilla and Achilla who you met several chapters ago who were Roman people who were believers in Jesus. But they by then had been kicked out of the city because they were Jewish. And so there's a very small Christian population in the city at this point. And now, currently, like my friend Renee says, now most people have forgotten their Christian roots. They have some kind of hold on Catholicism, if anything, but most evangelical Protestant churches are an afterthought in the city of Rome. But, man, look up, look up Renee Brule, Hopera Church, Rome, and look at the work that these guys are doing today. It's extraordinary, the ways that they're serving the community in Rome, and people are coming to Christ, and people are being baptized, In Rome, and it's extraordinary. Pre Christian Rome, post Christian Rome, God is on the move in Rome. And God is on the move in our places today, too, because I think Salem is a type of Rome for us. And I think God is calling us to count the cost for living in a place like this, because Salem is a place that is foreign to many of us. It's a place that is plural, it's a place that is costly, both literally and also discomfort wise and it's a place that's predominantly not christian so again there's not a Colosseum where they're persecuting christians in rome i'm not going to go that far it's not that bad but we are in a place of rome here that we can learn from paul how does paul operate in these two years in rome that we can learn as a church today how to be like him so here's my next question Why or how can we see a place like Rome and have it be our home? The name of the sermon today is Home and Rome, because God calls his people to be at home in the hard places, because God loves to call his people to hard places, to be a light in the darkness, and to bring hope to the hopeless. So let me give you just a couple of points here. How can a place like Rome be our home? (coughs) Excuse me. First point, because God calls his people to live, especially in hard places. He's always called his people to live in hard places. Sarah and I and our family wanted to move to Salem because we knew it was going to be hard. Because that's what God does. He calls his people to go to hard places because that's where the needs are. Think of Abraham being called to leave his family, his home in the Ur of the Chaldeans, way back in Genesis 12. To go to the land that I will show you is what he says. Think of the Old Testament exiles. Jerusalem, they have to flee Jerusalem, they go to exile. And in Jeremiah 29, God says, build houses, plant gardens, marry, have children, put your life here. Seek the welfare of the city that I've called you into because when you seek its peace and welfare, you will find your peace and welfare. Because even in Babylon or even in the hard places, I'm calling you there to be a light to the nations. Let me bring one a little bit closer to home for our church. Anybody know the name Adoniram and Ann Judson? Does that name ring any bells for this church? Adoniram Judson married a woman named Anne Hasseltine. You've heard this story, but if you haven't, just listen to this. Adoniram wrote a letter to Anne's father when he wanted to propose to her and ask for her hand in marriage. And this is the letter that Adoniram wrote to Anne's father. Quote, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposures to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, persecution, perhaps even a violent death. This is a proposal letter, by the way. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing, immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Can I marry your daughter? Adniram was moving to a hard place, Burma, to take the gospel to people who had never heard it. And Anne wanted to come with them. And they knew it was going to be hard. God calls people to hard places. And the legacy of Adoniram and Anne Judson in Burma still lives to this day. The only Bible that they still use is the, is the translation that that Adniram made from Burmese from English to Burmese, and they made an enormous legacy. And Anne did die at sea in Burma. They counted the cost, but God calls His people to hard places. God called Paul to go to Rome. In Acts twenty-three, it says the Lord stood by him in the evening and said, "Take courage." For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must also you testify about me in Rome. God calls him to hard places. God has called you and me to live in the hard place of New England spiritually. This is a hard place to be a Christian. It's got hard needs, hard challenges, hard realities. But even just on a a normal level, it has harsh winters. It has expensive rents. It has social misunderstandings. The Red Sox didn't win the World Series for like 100 years. It's been a hard place. But God has called us here, and he's kept this church here for 217 years so that we might be a glorious witness to his grace and mercy and love here in this hard place. And God will honor that if you're up for it. If you're on the ship, on this church's ship, then we're going to do amazing things because God loves to call people to hard places. Have you ever thought that you've you've been called to this place? You have. God loves to call people to hard places. God equips his people to minister in hard places too. He doesn't just call you here and say good luck. He's equipped you and he is equipping you to minister in hard places like this. Because the gospel itself is designed for hard places. It's not designed for other Christians only. It's designed to break into people's lives and to bring the hope and the glory and the mercy and the love that people are so desperately longing for. It's liberty for the captives, good news for the poor, sight for the blind. That's what Jesus says. It's good news. God's people are designed for hard places, to be salt and light. As Jesus says, you you don't shine light by putting a light on a table and then putting a bowl over it. You shine your light by being out in the open. Or think about the salt metaphor. Salt has no use if it's just sitting in the salt shaker. You gotta pour that salt on the things that are otherwise bland to give it that beautiful taste, to bring the saltiness that the world is desiring. Think of how Paul was equipped here. He was a trained Jewish teacher. He knew every bit of the law. He was a persecutor of Christians. And then he had this direct encounter with Jesus that changed his life. Then he took some time alone in the desert of Arabia to learn the way of Jesus more. And then he went to the city of Antioch, where he was part of this initial sending church. Then he was a missionary across the Mediterranean and all these cities. Think about all that he learned from all those experiences that then brought him to a place like Rome. So he could be an effective minister of the gospel there. And now think about how God has been equipping you in your life for such a time as this, to be part of a mission and a church like this in a city that needs the good news so desperately. One cool thing about ministry is that there's there's official ministry and there's unofficial ministry. And this is what my friend Renee in Rome taught me in an article this week. Is, he says, one surprise we discovered here in Rome was that unofficial ministry often counts more than official ministry. What he means is people want to be invited over for dinner. They want to be ministered to around the table. He says if you invite them to something more organized or more official, like a Bible study at a church building or to a service, that people may be scared by that or threatened by that. He says, but things like hospitality are ways that people will be open to hearing what you have to say. that's why when you look at Paul in verse 30 it says he lived at his own expense for two years and what does he do next he welcomed all who came to him Paul's just sitting in that house under house arrest and he's like hey you want to come visit I'd love to welcome you in come in here and we'll talk for two years as much as you want he welcomes them in he welcomed all that came to him he practiced hospitality he loved people There's a story I heard uh, this week. It's it's been repeated every every year about this time of year for five or six years. But there was a grandmother who wrote a text message that she was trying to send to her grandson to invite him over for Thanksgiving dinner. And she texted him uh, to invite him to dinner. And she didn't know that her grandson had changed his phone number. And so the the person who received the text message was another teenager in the local school who got this message from a random grandmother inviting him over for Thanksgiving dinner. And he responded back. He said, I'm not your grandson, but I'd still love to come to dinner if that's okay. And the grandmother said, of course, that's what grandmothers do. We provide meals, come on over. And for seven years, they've been having Thanksgiving dinner together. And they they keep putting this story out about this time every year just to show how much how beautiful the thing is. She welcomed him in. And friends, that's what Christians do. That's what Paul did. We welcome people in. Anybody, anytime. Come. Let me bless you. Let me invite you into my life. And eventually, then that's why in verse 30 and 30 or 31 now, Paul then can be equipped to proclaim and to teach kingdom in the person of Jesus out of that welcoming spirit out of that place of trust and love and ultimately in verse 31 it says he did it with all boldness and without hindrance nothing was holding him back he had freedom to do this he wasn't being persecuted yet eventually that would come but at this point he was free to share with people what his beliefs were and he did it with all boldness he had nothing to lose He was free. He was surely remembering the times throughout the Old Testament when God said, Do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you. Think about how many times that's been repeated to the Old Testament saints. Not the government, not the police, not his own fears, not any doubts, not anything else was holding Paul back. He just went for it. Because his life had been changed by the kingdom of God breaking into the world and by the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, if that's changed my life, I want everybody to know that, even in a hard place. Because God's kingdom is everlasting and Jesus is raised, even the hard places will receive that good news. God's kingdom is forever. It says he proclaimed God's the kingdom of God God's kingdom is forever. It outlasts every government and politician that we talked about last week. And that's why Paul proclaims it, because he's looking and he's saying, guys, Rome is amazing now, but it will one day fade. And God's kingdom will shine forth. And that's why on our banner here or on our website, we say that we are a church that is for Christ's kingdom, because Christ's kingdom is the only kingdom that will last. And it says he taught all about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is authoritative over all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. He taught them everything about him in fulfillment of Jesus' great commission, where he says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So that's what he does. He says, Jesus has been raised, and therefore I'm going to teach you all about him. And God gives us a window of opportunity in hard places to do that. And I'm not here guaranteeing you that that window of opportunity will always be open. I don't know what direction our culture is going or our city or our world, but I do know the window is open right now. The window is open or the door is open for us to share freely the hope of the gospel. And friends, may we take advantage of that and be bold without hindrance, because we're free to do so. And God will draw people to himself through our witness through me and you. This is what the church exists for. Jesus says, See, the fields are white for harvest. Therefore, pray that the Lord would send workers into his harvest field. Friends, that's why Sarah and I came, to be in that harvest field and to invite you into that harvest field with us, to partner together with God in his work that he's doing in Salem. So as we finish this sermon and our series in acts, let me just tell you what we've learned about the church through the book of Acts. If you're listening online, I think there's a slide that has all these listed. Uh, If you're here in person, you can't see it, but just listen. This is what we've learned about the church in the book of Acts. The church is empowered for a purpose. The church is organized for a purpose. It's It's on whom God's spirit rests. It's unique in the world. It's in Jesus's name. It's bold with the gospel, it's changed by grace, it's servants in the story, scattered for a purpose, never too far, uncommon, little Christ, sent, mundane but glorious, praying and singing for every culture, community, in, with, and for Jesus, equipping the saints, embracing his grace, discerning the will of God, persecuted with hope, submitting to the way, at home in Rome. That's what we've learned through the book of Acts. And there's just one more thing I want to mention. The church is not a project. The church is a home. And friends, we are a home together because Jesus is dwelling with us. His Holy Spirit is on us. This is not a project we're trying to complete or a short-term thing that we're just trying to be part of to do good this is a home in which to live and to find our hope and meaning and joy in life. And friends, I'm, I'm loving being in that home with you. What an amazing joy that brings me. As we come to the end of Acts, we realize that it's actually the beginning for each of us. Let me just give you this quick story. I was, I was so frustrated on Wednesday of this week I spent four hours on my back, six hours, thank you, on my back under the sink trying to fix my kitchen faucet. I was so frustrated. I was watching this YouTube video trying to help me figure it out. I was, I was not getting this thing to release. It was so frustrating. I'm still sore from it. And then I, I watched the last one minute of the video that I had not watched six hours before. And then I completed the project 15 minutes later. The point is, the end of the story helps you understand the whole thing. As we come to the end of the book of Acts, we see Paul in Rome, and that shows us our part in the story. Jesus said at the beginning of Acts, Go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And here is Paul at the gates of the ends of the earth, And he's doing it. He's doing the ministry that Jesus called him to. And we're doing it. We're on the cusp of the kingdom of God, the gates of the ends of the earth. And we're one day closer to heaven, to our eternal home. But friends, may we make our home in this hard place because God's going to do something extraordinary through us. And that's it. That's the book of Acts. So next week, we're going to start our Advent series, and I can't wait for that. Let's be the church together. Let me close us in prayer, and we'll sing one more song. Lord Jesus, we give you praise because you have established the church with your spirit, with your gospel, with your message, with your sending pleasure. You are right here with us. You've called us to a place like Salem where so many people, their lives would change if they knew what you've done for them. So Lord, would you... uh, Equip us for that task. Help us to encourage one another as a church to find our place in this city as a joyous witness of laying our lives down, being servants because that's how you were, uh, loving because that's how you were, yet also having firm convictions of truth because you are the way, the truth, and the life. Go before us, Lord Jesus, as we be your church in Salem. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.